The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. So today is um, what is the date today? Anybody know? Twenty first. Twenty first. Okay, it's the twenty first of May. 2019 and we're just going to continue in our series of talks um, on the long ancestral line which we just chanted a good a good introduction to our into onto our um, talk today and so we're taking up the next one in the Denko Roku uh, this is number nine and it's um, the exchange between um, Buddha Nandi and uh, his teacher uh, Vasumitra, and I'll start just reading reading the whole thing, and then we'll um, take a look at it. So this is the case. When Buddhanandi met Vasumitra, he said, "I have come to discuss the truth with you." Vasumitra said, "Good sir, discussion is not the truth. The truth is not discussed." If you want to discuss the truth, in the, in the end it is not a discussion of truth. Buddhadandi knew that Vasumitra's doctrine was superior to his own, and he realized the truth of no birth. And then the verse. Even Subhuti and Vilamakirti could not talk about it. Modgalyalana and Shariputra could not see it. If you want to realize this truly, isn't salt suitable for all food? Okay, we don't have much uh, on Buddhanandi, um, just that he was born in northern India, and um, when he met his teacher, he was in a place called Kamala. He became a monk at the age of 14. And um, it is said that he had um, a fleshy protuberance on the top of his head, a little bit like um, uh, our Buddha on the altar. Buddhas traditionally are shown with this extra kind of bump on the top of their heads. The other protagonist in this is Vasumitra, who, who we met in the last um, show. So I won't um, go over that again, since I think most of you were here for that. Um, Master Kazan, um, in the Denkoroku, he sets the scene for this um, for this encounter between Buddhanandri and Vasumitra. He says, in, his de in debate, he was unstoppable. The seventh patriarch, the venerable Vasumitra, came to Kamala to convert people, and he promoted Buddhism extensively. The master stood before, and this, the master is referring to Buddhanandri. Buddhanandri stood before the sitting Vasumitra and said, I am named Buddhanandri. And right now, I want to discuss truth with you. The Venerable Vasumitra said, Good sir, 
If you discuss, it is not the truth. Truth is not discussed. So, um, we, get, we get an immediate impression here of, of uh, Buddha Nandi's um, nature. We hear that he's, he's very good at debate, good with words, and that he has a kind of confidence, a brashness even, in that um, he comes forward, introduces him, still standing up while the master is seated, which, which um, um, was sort of not following protocol because it would be um, seen as um, disrespectful to be stand, kind of standing over the master. So there's, there's, there's something quite um, energetic and um, uh, possibly brash in the way that um, Buddhanandi comes forward. And it's, and it's a paradoxical little story here because we have, we have um, Buddhanandi saying he wants to, to discuss the truth with the Master. And then Vasumitra saying, saying, if you want to discuss the truth, in the end it is not a discussion of truth. Um, in other words, our words about things are not it. But the paradox is that then Vasumitra, um, having said this, um, prompts, triggers an awakening in Buddhanandi. It says Buddhanandi knew the Vasumitra's doctrine was superior to his own and he realized the truth of no birth. So this he realizes this unborn truth on hearing Vasumitra's words. Doesn't this um, in some sense contradict what Vasumitra is saying? Or does it? Here's what um, uh, Lex Hickson, who's um, written a kind of loose response to each of the koans in the Denka Roku. Here's the way Hickson describes it. A certain Buddhanandi, deeply committed to philosophical investigation, invincible in dialectic, is the karmically destined successor whom Vasumitra is patiently seeking. The crown protuberance, one sign of Buddhahood, already manifests on Buddhanandi's head. The exalted term Buddha, meaning awake, already appears in his name. Entering the presence of the awakened one, this is meaning uh, the presence of uh, Vasumitra. With intense confidence, even before sitting down, he announces, I have come to debate with you about the nature of truth. 
Buddhanandi presumes that he can confront this wandering sage eyebrow to eyebrow, as he has done in so many other instances during his distinguished debating career. He is surprised and fully enlightened by the delightful response of the living Buddha, who speaks gently and harmoniously without a trace of the usual intellectual religious rivalry. Beloved friend, truth does not have two sides and therefore has never been debated and can never be debated. Whatever one may debate, no matter how profoundly, is therefore simply not truth. Buddhanandi is dedicated to following deep philosophy wherever it may lead and therefore cannot avoid being awakened to the unformulatability and indivisibility by these simple words which bear the transforming power of realization. The successor has been skillfully debating for many years about various expressions of truth without experiencing truth directly. He now effortlessly mirrors the light of transformation. So we have, it's like we have two things coming together here when these two um, meet, have uh, Vasumitra's words, harmonious words, his, his words coming from a place of non-duality. And then we have Buddhanandi's readiness. He's open, he's, he's searching, he's been a debater, he's traveled around trying to find the truth. But in some way he is at that moment where he can just uh, drop his past experience and, and um, appreciate what uh, Vasumitra is saying. Um, next next Tuesday night we're going to have a, a discussion about um, making a climate emergency declaration and it struck me just working on this this koan um, can we find a way to make such a statement from a place of of real um, harmony and gentleness um, or we could say from a place of love we're not a place of of creating more enemies creating a more uh, self and other one of the things that really is clear is that um, not we need to go beyond just making changes in our personal lives those are important but um, it's also necessary for people to really get into um, advocating, um, which means which means entering into a kind of a realm in which um, which can be adversarial. So how can we do that? This is a, this is a koan for us, really. How do, how do we do that without falling into um, strongly dualistic thinking, thinking without identifying with one side? Of, of the argument and it's really a question that relates to how we do our practice day by day can we can we go through our day and our, our, our work and our relationships um, with an awareness of 
this truth is described here as the truth of, of uh, no birth, the truth of the unborn, that which doesn't die and, and can't be taken from us. I was doing some um, cleaning out over, over the weekend and I came across a box with it, and in the bottom of it was a t-shirt that somebody gave me a few years ago which I'd forgotten about and it's got a sort of like a traffic sign picture of somebody meditating like a somebody sitting cross-legged with their hands gathered and it's got under underneath it meditate and then under that it's not what you think the truth the capital T is is not what we know and it's not what we hold on to that that is actually a recipe for suffering if we if we are strongly identify with um, what we know, what we believe, um, th th those strong identifications will be like, like hooks in us, and we will we will get hooks, get hooked. Um, came across a passage which very vividly captured this. This is from a book called *The Transformative Power of Crisis* by. Robert Alter, and its passage headed up, de-velcro yourself, and he starts off with a quotation from Carl Jung, when an inner situation is not made conscious, it happens outside as fate. So if we have, if we hold tightly, um, and unconsciously to strong opinions, then um, we'll be we'll be faced with opposition to those in the outside world, people we meet. He writes, as we go through life, despite our intention to look for the best in people and to not let anyone get to us, you will always find that while some of those we meet inspire or delight or comfort us, some people drive us absolutely nuts. Sometimes it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is that makes another person's presence feel like fingernails raking across a blackboard. What's going on here? Why are we so affected by other people? And then he says, Velcro. If we have anything inside us that can be disturbed or perturbed by the traits of another human being, something deep within us that is hookable, depend on it, somebody with those traits will show up in our lives and stick to us just like a matching piece of Velcro. And I think everybody comes across, comes across these people, but we can be sure that it is because they, that they hook us because in some way that there is, is a hidden congruence between um, their views and our own, or a or a dissonance, that that um, but a dissonance that fits with us in one way or another. 
These hookable traits will show up in our, in our acquaintances, in our friends and neighbours, in our colleagues and co-workers, in our parents and children, and of course, big time, in our partners. The closer the relationship, the bigger our pieces of Velcro will be. That's why we can feel driven almost completely crazy by the very people we depend on the most in our lives. goes on to talk about seeing a, um, a show, a David Letterman show, where he was wearing a bodysuit made entirely of Velcro and he would um, jump off a springboard onto a wall made entirely of Vel Velcro and of course um, stick there, absolutely helpless and unable to um, extricate himself from this. And it's a good, it's a good um, uh, image for how we can get hooked when we attach to our thoughts. But he, he goes on to point out that um, we can actually be, be grateful for these people because they, um, they can help us to see where we hold our opinions and thoughts very tightly. He says, once we understand how the system works, relationships, even uncomfortable ones, get a lot more interesting, even fun, because then we can use them to find our patches of Velcro. In this way, we no longer spend so much of our time frustrated and accusing the other person of driving us crazy. Instead, we're busy looking at all the fascinating ways in which we ourselves are going crazy. And he, he says, de-Velcro yourself. This isn't about your obnoxious new co-worker or your busy busybody neighbor or your endlessly procrastinating spouse. This is about you and about your powerful negative reactions to other people's behaviors. It's difficult to do, but um, we can do it with some perseverance and with some attention to um, what we tell ourselves, what narratives we have running inside, what kinds of inner dialogues and debates we, we uh, play or replay. Now back to, to Hickson on this, um, this koan. He says, Whatever can be asserted about reality, however coherently and correctly, must remain on the level of discussion. There is always some other perspective from which any assertion can be and must be debated. Even the slightest intention to assert or discuss already veils what is real. No verbal claim, such as the correct assertion that minds and its objects 
are not fundamentally separate can be truth. The verbal claim that truth is beyond words and thought is also not truth. To assert that subject and object are forgotten in the blessed experience of enlightenment or to express the higher view that subject and object are not forgotten in enlightenment, neither is truth. So everything also that goes for everything that, that, um, that I'm saying in this Teisho. The verbal claim that truth is beyond words and thought is also not truth. You think here, this is very much like the Diamond Sutra, some of you may have read, where um, it, it, it relentlessly, chapter after chapter, just takes away whatever we, whatever we might want to hold on to. And that includes the highest truths of Buddhism. Hickson says, to extinguish body and mind in unbroken concentration is a severe obstruction. And that's a description of samadhi, what, something we usually look on with great value, but he's saying here it's an obstruction. It becomes an obstruction if we attach to it, if we turn it into something that is an object of our thought and our desire. Even the much higher way of rejecting the separate categories, delusion and enlightenment, avoiding the notions impurity and purity is an opaque veil. Both form and formless misrepresent truth, like the mirage misrepresents the desert. We should neither seek truth through the golden forms of Buddhas, nor through their brilliant formulessness. If you claim cyclical existence to be a dream, there remains someone dreaming and someone claiming. How funny! Even the distinction between false and true remains on the level of perennial discussion and is therefore not truth. Simply be truth, but do not imagine you are going to become a still pond or a stainless sky. We can... Um, one of great master, when he died, he was asked to leave his last words and he, he wrote the single character for dream on a scroll. But even, even that, if we turn it into a claim about existence, then who is, who is making that claim and who is, who is doing the dreaming? What is doing the dreaming? Um, talking about something quite similar, um, Barry Maggot in his book, The Ending the Pursuit of Happiness, mentions Wittgenstein, who um, said something very similar about, about um, uh, debate or discussion. It says, Wittgenstein admonished us that explanations in philosophy must eventually come to an end. How do we justify a rule like the way a bishop moves in chess? It is how the game is played. As Wittgenstein put it, when I have exhausted the justifications, I have reached bedrock 
and my spade is turned, then I am inclined to say, this is what I do. We are compelled to examine what we imagine would count as an explanation or justification. He goes on, philosophy simply puts everything before us and neither explains nor deduces anything. Since everything lies open to view, there is nothing to explain. Um, a lot of philosophy seems to just do a lot of arguing and debating, but perhaps this is the highest, the highest purpose of a philosophy, to, for us to open to things as they are. Think of um, you know, the, the three conditions of existence that are taught in Buddhism. Um, suffering, impermanence and no self. These are the things we can't, we can't say why is there suffering or why, or at least not why is there impermanence. They are, they, they, they're just the way they are. Or think of what Leibniz said, um, why is there something rather than nothing? There clearly is something if if we're able to ask that question. But what is that? Baggett continues, Likewise, Zen simply lays our life as it is before us. That life includes suffering, old age and death. The Heart Sutra tells us there is no old age and no and death and no end to old age and death. To say no old age and death is precisely to say they have no separate meaning or existing existence outside of life. They disappear into the vast and wide expanse of life itself. In a strange way, the question of why blurs into the question of who. Really, we can't, we can't say why, we can't answer the question why, but we can look into who or what. What is the nature of, of suffering and old age and death? Um, just been reading a um, book that I strongly recommend to people in terms of just um, motivating our practice. It's, um, it's by um, New Yorker writer Atul Gawande. It's called um, Being Mortal and it's an extraordinary um, exploration of what it is to be mortal in our time and the way in which um, aging and death have become medicalized and really out of a, um, in, often out of an um, almost an inability or a lack of training in any kind of um, acceptance of death and, and thinking about how we want to, what is important to us as we, as we die and as we age as well. Um, it's, a, it's a very powerful book.
He continues, this is Maggot. Some years ago, my wife Debbie died in a plane crash. When I told my teacher what happened, I said that the one thing I never wanted to hear from her or anybody else is that this had any meaning whatsoever. No unseen plan could justify it. No subsequent good could give it meaning. Death happens. For me, the why simply disappears into brute fact. Yet the consequence is that disappearance isn't grim resignation. It is liberation into a simultaneously problematic and problem-free life. It is not a problem to have problems, and problems are no longer separate from the rest of our life. But this is what we do. We, we, we um, pull the, the problem out and we um, get, get caught up in it and think that our problems uh, define us in some way. He says, we have a life of no problems because problems disappear into the fabric of our life inseparably part of its warp and woof. As part of our Buddhist service we chant, may we exist like a lotus at home in muddy water. The lotus of enlightenment only blooms amid the nutrient mud of delusion, yet it is so easy in our practice to become unbalanced, to focus predominantly on either the bloom of the lotus or the messiness of the mud. Either we become infatuated with the flower of enlightenment forgetting its relationship to the mud of our everyday lives, or we are fixated on our problems, our inadequacies, and doubt everything could ever, doubt that anything could ever grow in such muck. We either become connoisseurs of the flower or launch into a water purification project. What really um, is is demanded of us in our in our Zen practice is to to um, give up as much as we can our maneuvering in uh, Kazan's commentary on this con he he um, emphasizes that we can't grasp or, or understand our true self in any kind of conceptual way. Um, we have to have to experience it. We have to look it directly in the eye. He says we have to ex um, do this carefully and exhaustively. He gives um, he gives the example of a his one of his predecessors predecessors um, Tozan, who was the who was the founder of of um, Soto School in China, Zhao Zhong Dong School. His um, Chinese name is is Dongshan. He tells, he tells the story of Tozan's awakening, Great Awakening. He says, um, 
and here I'll use the I'll use the Japanese names of these masters because they're more familiar. Priest Tozan studied with Isan and Ungan. Although he was one of the myriad he was one with the myriad things and understood that the whole of existence preaches the Dharma, still he thought that this was not enough. In other words, he he was still um, feeling that he could understand more more profoundly or um, completely. Still he thought that this was not enough. For this reason, Ungan continued to encourage him, in other words, encouraged him to, to um, keep practicing, saying, you must be careful in experiencing this matter. However, some doubt remained. Leaving Ungan for a while and going away, he was crossing a stream, and when he saw his reflection in the water, he suddenly grasped the matter. And, and uh, Hickson here points out that he left, you could say he left the structured environment of the, of the monastery and, and entered into just nature, into the wilderness. And it was as he wandered through this wilderness and as he crossed this, this um, stream and saw his reflection in the fastly flowing water that he had his deepest experience. And then he said in a voice, in a verse, avoid seeking him in someone else, or you will be far apart from the self. Solitary now I am I, and independent, but I meet him everywhere. He now is surely me, but I am not him. Understanding it in this way, you will directly merge with thusness. I think here the, the lines that, that um, jump out are, um, and he's, he's re referring to his true nature as, as him here. So, um, I meet him everywhere. He, is, he now is surely me, but I am not him. What's he mean here? It, our, our true, na true nature um, sh certainly permeates every part of us, but at the same time, um, if we were to to um, identify with that in a personal kind of way, it would turn into um, megalomania or, or uh, madness. We're also called on to to relate to this true nature uh, with, with humility. The, the Buddha nature flows through us, it, it animates us, but it's also much greater than we are. Understanding it in this way, you will directly merge with thusness.
here's um, Hickson again. The transmission of light, this is the, the transmission of the, of the teaching of the truth, always comes from itself to itself, dissolving the duality of master and disciple, as well as the duality of disciple and himself or herself. Yet the, tra the delightful transparent play of two-ness always remains in play. Fully awakened, Dongshan can now sing about the principle of the living Buddha. Avoid seeking him in someone else or in yourself, but meet him everywhere. Certainly he is me, but this dusty, dusty foolish traveller that I am is not him. And Hickson's comment on this is, this is the secret of living Buddha Zen, its great power, its great humility. Be Buddha, be total awakeness, but at the same time don't inflate into something uh, monstrous. Lastly, just we'll have a look at this verse. Um, it goes, Even Sabuti and Vilamakirti could not talk about it. Modgalyana and Shariputra could not see it. If you want to realize this truly, isn't salt suitable for all food? So, um, Sabuti and Vilamakirti. Um, Subhuti is one of the ten great disciples of the Buddha, um, and in the in the Prajnaparamita Sutras, it's often Subhuti who will ex expound on in, on emptiness uh, because of his great insight. So he's um, extremely eloquent in talking about the most the loftiest teachings of Buddhism. And Vilamakirti, of course, is the great layman and um, he's famous for his silence um, when uh, invited to discourse on um, the highest truths. So these, these two great teachers, you could say here, can't talk about it. And then the, 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 the second two names, Modgalyayana and Shariputra, they could not see it, or cannot see it. They, um, again, are great disciples of the Buddha, one known for his, his supernatural powers and the others for his great wisdom. So these great seers of Buddhism can't see it. So, so it's it's not can't be talked about even by the most eloquent. It can't be seen even by the wisest. If you want to realize this truly, isn't salt suitable for all food? So what what's Kazan talking about here? What is this salt that he's referring to? This is a, one of the points that one has to work on in this koan. What is it that goes with everything? But it's not something you'd eat all by itself. It wouldn't be very, it would be pretty unpleasant and, and not sufficient. It has to go with 
what? One of the things that makes makes practice difficult is this um, the the fact that the truth is in plain sight. It's um, something with which we are absolutely intimate, completely one with. And, and it's so obvious that it is hard for us to see it. In fact, we can't. We can't see it in the sense of apprehending it. Because this truth is bigger than any concept we can have of it, any word we can, or words that we use for it. Let's finish with, with Kazan's advice to us. Work carefully and do not be hasty. I'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passion. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.org. Auckland Zen dot org dot NZ